0: And it's a privilege to uh, join with you all here tonight here on the Advent Hope Livestream Vespers. I just arrived a few hours ago in the Loma Linda area from Chicago and was delighted to uh, be met by warm weather and also by a warm welcome. And uh, so I'm looking forward to sharing these Sabbath hours with you as we worship our Lord and Savior together. As as was shared by Sister Josie, uh, I've worked in many parts of the world And um, God has blessed in many incredible ways. And uh, so what I share with you tonight um, is born out of um, a lot of experience of seeing things in different parts of the world that relate to us today. I'm the husband of one wife, which is very good because it means I only have one mother-in-law. That's an English joke. And uh, we have two children and uh, our families are scattered around the world in Russia and Australia and England and Ireland. But it's my privilege to be joining you with you tonight as a brother in Christ to share some of the good news about Jesus Christ himself. It was about four, just about four years ago, I was flying to Thailand and uh, I was flying to Thailand through um, South Korea. And it was election night and um, it was President Trump, it was candidate Trump against candidate Clinton. And uh, we took off at about five o'clock in the afternoon from Chicago O'Hare and nobody knew who'd won the election. And when we arrived, the plane uh, arrived in South Korea, everybody was frantically checking their cell phones to see who'd won the election and nobody knew it still by that stage. So we, then we got on the plane and we went down to Bangkok. And when we arrived in Bangkok, um, I didn't need to look at my phone, to see who'd won the election because uh, President Trump's face was on the side of so many buildings. I kind of figured, oh, he must've won the election. What was interesting to me was that around the world, people are watching our elections here in America back then four years ago and this year uh, because who the leader is has a major impact not just on america but on the rest of the world but i want to challenge us tonight and and just call us back to our our foundation identity that we are first and foremost citizens of heaven above and it's from heaven that we are expecting our savior the lord jesus christ as the apostle paul tells us in philippians chapter one and so i want to reflect tonight on on my favorite painting I like going to art galleries around the world. Um, I I like just looking at the pictures. I like listening to the descriptions of what's going on in the picture. Um, Oftentimes, to my untrained eye, I just see a picture. And when I listen to the description, I realize how much meaning the author or the the artist has put into that painting. And you you see behind me on the screen, if I just move to the side here, um, a very, very famous painting, and one of my favorite paintings of all time, Ecce Homo by Antonio Cesare. And this picture is framed by the author from behind. And it's a startling picture, almost like a photograph. It's a vision of a public judgment. It is a huge and ambitious portrayal of the trial of Jesus. And uh, it's currently housed in Florence in Italy. And it feels like almost a a full-color photograph of the scene. Now, if you look closely at the picture, you'll notice that Pilate is looking out at the crowd. You cannot see Pilate's face. And if you look closely at the picture neither can you see the face of jesus and again if you look closely at the picture the crowd who are calling for jesus to be crucified you cannot see their faces either the key actors you cannot see their faces but if you look also again at the picture you see there are witnesses um, behind the back of jesus to the side of jesus there are other witnesses who are looking in on the scene who are not calling for the crucifixion of jesus and Antonio Cesare is inviting us to be a witness to these events and to ask ourselves: Where do we stand in the call to crucify Jesus? Are we with the mob, or are we taking a different position? Uh, Pilate said, "Ecce homo, behold the man." It's a very famous um, scene from John chapter nineteen, and uh, as. as Pilate says, behold the man, I want to reflect with us tonight on what exactly is John and his gospel, what is he inviting us to see? Uh, Who are we being invited to look upon? Uh, When John says, behold the man, who does he want to come into our lives tonight in 21st century America? Well, in the immediate context of the scene uh, that we see um, behind me on the screen, Jesus has already been interviewed by Annas. He was the ex-high priest. He'd then been dragged to see the house of Caiaphas, who was the current high priest. And then he'd been taken to the full Sanhedrin through an exhausting night of illegal, legal exchanges. He'd been dragged like a common criminal through the darkened streets. He's been spat upon. He's been beaten about the head, slapped in the face and cruelly bound, abandoned by his disciples, denied by Peter, publicly mocked, ridiculed and condemned to death. (coughs) All of this before his legal trial has even begun. And so then we come to the legal trial in John chapter 19. And uh, John chapter 19, verses one through five, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open the word of God and just read along as I speak with you this evening. John chapter 19, verses one through five, it says this, it says, then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. And the soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head and they dressed him in a purple robe. They kept coming up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and striking him in the face. Pilate went out again and said to them, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no case against him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said, Behold the man, or Latin, ecce homo. And you see that scene behind me as I just moved to one side. Very, very famous scene. Behold the man. It's interesting that Pilate has already declared Jesus to be innocent, and yet he has Jesus flogged. Now in in the Roman legal system, there were kind of three levels of flogging. Uh, The first was a, a minor beating for a common offense. It was known as a pustigatio. Then there was a more serious kind of beating that was known as a flogalatio from where we get the word flogging. That was a severe beating for a severe offense. But when somebody was to be condemned to die through crucifixion, they received a brutal scourging essentially designed to soften you up so that when you were crucified, you died quickly. That was known as a verberatio. And people often died under this most brutal flogging that could be administered. The Roman historian Josephus records that he performed verberatio on prisoners in Galilee during the AD 66 to AD 70 revolt against the Romans. And he records that he whipped people until, quote, (coughs) their entrails were bare. Albinus, the Roman governor of Judea, just before the revolt, scourged a Jewish charismatic called uh, Jesus Bar Hanan until the bones across his back were laid bare. This was a severe beating that Pilate administered to Jesus. It was a beating designed to take Jesus to the point of death, but not quite. So that when Jesus was taken to the cross, he was already broken physically. And in the passage I've just read for you, we read that the Roman soldiers, they gathered Jesus in their um, headquarters and they mock him. They put on his head a crown of thorns. And if you go to the Middle East today and you go to Jerusalem, uh, they they have palm trees there. And uh, whereas where I come from in England, thorn bushes have thorns that may be about uh, an inch long. Um, the, The thorns on a date palm stand up to 12 inches long and they radiate like the crown of a divine Hellenistic ruler. They put on his shoulders a robe a symbol of royalty they put into his hand a reed a symbol of a royal servant. and then they come and they mock before him in mock worship and and mock um acclaim uh, mocking him as the king of the jews remember these soldiers they were um they were they sent by rome to hold uh, the jews down they were an occupying force they were under constant threat from jewish zealots Uh, people who'd come up behind them and try and assassinate them in the streets. They had no love for any uh, person who's engaged in revolt against Rome. Now they get their hands on a prisoner, someone who people say is the king of the Jews. And uh, you can just imagine the the pent up frustration and anger and bitterness and rage that finally we've got our hands on a revolutionary and we're going to show him what's what. And so the Roman soldiers give Jesus a a thorough, a terrible time. Um, If you want to know what happens when soldiers are angry and they get one of their enemies in their hands, um, look around the world today. Look what happened in Bosnia, in Sierra Leone, in the killing fields of Cambodia, in Congo or in Iraq. When Pilate gave Jesus over to his Roman soldiers, it was a brutal and a brutalizing experience for Jesus. And then Pilate brings Jesus out. And you see him standing behind me on the slide there. He points to Jesus and he says those famous words. Ecce homo, behold the man. We ask ourselves, what did the crowd see when Pilate said, "Ecce homo, behold the man? Well, clearly Jesus was tired. He'd just gone through a whole night without sleep and exhausting illegal legal exchanges. He was hungry. He was thirsty. His gaunt face was swollen from the beatings. His eyes were puffy from repeated poundings. The soldier's spickle and blood runs down his face mixing together. The crown of thorns is pressing across his brow, causing fresh bleeding with each movement. His back is torn to ribbons and quite possibly some of his bones are starting to show through. He's pale and slow moving from blood loss and from shock. He's been abandoned by friends, denied by colleagues, the victim of a corrupt legal system, a refugee, a peasant from Galilee. He probably speaks with a working class accent from a working class district a man of uncertain parentage, mama's baby, but papa's maybe. And so as Jesus stands there on the podium and Pilate says, behold the man, the crowd looks up at Jesus, the mob looks up and the waves of cursing, of jeering, of mockery and catcalls rise in a tidal wave of hatred and anger. And it swirls around the podium, threatening to engulf Jesus as he stands there, arrayed in a royal robe and with a royal crown. And yet Jesus is silent. And if we ask ourselves today in the 21st century, when Pilate says, Ecce homo, behold the man, who do we see today? Well, I want to draw on, the, on John's own gospel here for a few moments this evening and reflect on who John says is standing at the podium when Pilate says, Ecce homo. And the first thing we see is God with us, Emmanuel. Because in the immediate context of this story, the crowd sees a man battered, bruised, and bleeding, but nevertheless, he is a man. John one fourteen says the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The awful sight before us removes any doubts about the humanity of Jesus. He suffered physically in an incredible way. He was beaten, slapped, scourged. He was hungry, he was 30, thirsty. He was punched and he was spat upon. But beyond the physical torture, there was also the emotional torment that he was going through as well. He was abandoned by those who, was clo- who were closest to him. He was denied by Peter, and it's probably better to, not to imagine what those soldiers did to him within their barracks. He suffered emotionally. He was ridiculed. He was laughed at. He was mocked. He was jeered. He was sneered at. He was a laughing stock of the soldiers and of the mob. No one likes to be made fun of. It really hurts. And as Isaiah 53 verse 3 says, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Psalm 22, verse 6 goes on to say, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. The famous uh, uh, um, author, Joni Erickson Tada, she reflected on what she sees when she sees Jesus standing on the podium. And listen to her words, speaking to someone who was a paraplegic who couldn't move her hands or her, her legs. Listen to her reflection on what she sees when she sees the suffering Jesus. She says, I discovered that the Lord Jesus Christ could indeed empathize with my situation on the cross for those agonizing, horrible hours waiting for death. He was immobilized, helpless, paralyzed. Jesus did know what it was not to be able to move, not to be able to scratch your nose, shift your weight, wipe your eyes. He was paralyzed on the cross. Christ knew exactly how I felt. So standing before us, we see God with us, Emmanuel. Many years ago, I used to serve with ADRA. And uh, one year, I found myself in southern Ethiopia. And uh, we were running a network of therapeutic and supplemental feeding centers. Um, What would happen is um, parents would bring in starving children. The children were suffering from acute malnutrition. And they would go into a therapeutic feeding program, uh, often uh, intravenous feeding. And then they would go to, when they recovered, they would go to a a supplemental feeding program. And by the time they'd spent maybe a month in these feeding centers, the children were well enough to be returned to their parents. As I was working at the camp, and I remember with the camp I was at, behind the camp, there was a large cemetery. And uh, some of the children did not make it through the treatment. They died. And we couldn't save them. And in one of the camps where I was working, there was a young boy running around, and he was about eight years old. And and I asked the staff, said, well, where where is his mother? Where is his father? And uh, what the staff told me was this. The mother had brought the child in almost at death's door, and uh, they thought that he had tuberculosis. But when they started doing tests on him, they realized that the young boy had AIDS. When the mother heard that her child had AIDS, she informed the staff that she was simply abandoning her child to the camp, and she was leaving, and she was not coming back for him. But the staff had not told this to the young boy. And so this young boy had, he'd recovered slightly, you No, know, he could run around, he could play with some of the other children. He was running around expecting one day to see his mother come for him, not knowing that she would never come for him. And I looked at that young boy and it just broke my heart at the, the, the pain, the suffering, sometimes the futility of much of human existence. And when I think of that boy in Ethiopia, who was diagnosed, they thought he had tuberculosis, he actually had HIV AIDS. My mind goes back to Jesus on the podium. I realize that God is with us in the midst of human suffering. See, on the podium, we see that God is truly Emmanuel. He is not a distant, unfeeling, inscrutable being, but God partakes in human suffering and he experienced the world the worst our world can do. So in the context of John's gospel, when Pilate says, Ecce homo, behold the man, who do I see tonight? I see God with us, Emmanuel. God who understands the depths of human suffering, God who is willing to walk the path of suffering with us, to identify with us in the midst of our pain. But that's not that's not all that we see on the podium tonight, because in the context of John's gospel, we see there's another name for Jesus that John uses early on in the gospel, and it is in John chapter one and verse 29, where John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus coming for baptism, he points to Jesus and he says, "Behold the Lamb of God." that taketh away the sin of the world. And so not only do we see God with us, that is Emmanuel, but on the podium we see God for us, that is the Lamb of God. He is acclaimed at the time of the Passover, and he's about to die, as the Lamb of God, whose death will pay the price for my sins and for your sins, for all of our sins here in the 21st century. It's interesting that in the trial of Jesus, Jesus was accused of blasphemy before the Jewish Sanhedrin And he was accused of treason before the Roman authorities. Both charges were capital charges. The Sanhedrin wanted to kill him for alleged blasphemy. And if if he were found guilty of uh, treason, he would be executed by the Roman governor. And when we reflect about it, um, blasphemy and treason are precisely what we are guilty of against our heavenly father. Genesis 3, verse 5, Satan said to Eve, if you eat the fruit, he said, you shall be like God the temptation was almost a blasphemy that if we eat of the fruit, we will be as God knowing good from evil. And when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, they engaged in an open act of rebellion against the authority of God, otherwise known as treason. And when they had engaged in their first sin in the garden of Eden, Jesus comes looking for them. The first Adam, uh, sorry, Jesus comes looking for the first Adam. And in Genesis chapter three and verse 13, Jesus asks of Adam, he says the question, what have you done? Uh, and I like to imagine, how did Jesus say that question? Maybe he said, what have you done? Maybe he's, maybe he said, what have you done? Maybe he said, what have you done? And uh, maybe he said, well, what have you done? I'm not sure how Jesus said that question, but that question, what have you done, has echoed through the hum- through the centuries of human existence. And when Jesus comes to trial before Pilate, he is asked exactly the same question. In John 18, verse 35, Pilate asks Jesus the same question. He says, what have you done? You see, the first Adam was guilty of blasphemy and treason. The second Adam, that is Jesus, was entirely innocent. But he has to stand trial and to pay the price for the first Adam. And that means he stands before Pilate and us as the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world barabbas is described in this chapter as it says now barabbas was a bandit this only occurs in one other place in the gospel of john john chapter 10 verse 8 where jesus describes false teachers and lawless teachers and hired hands who do not care for the flock but who run at the first sign of trouble but jesus says in this gospel that he is the good shepherd he says that he is the gate for the sheep he protects the sheep with his body And when necessary, he says in John 10, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Three times in John's gospel, Jesus says that as the good shepherd, he lays down his life for his sheep. He lays down his life for me and he lays down his life for you. So on the podium, beneath the blood and the gore and the sweat and the tears and the spittle and the pain, I see not only God with us, Emmanuel, but I also see God for us, the Lamb of God, A savior dying to save, dying to save you and dying to save me. But there's something else that we see when Pilate says, Ece Homo, behold the man. We see God with us, Emmanuel, God who partakes in human suffering, who understands the depths of human pain and injustice. We see God for us, the Lamb of God, dying to take away the sins of the world, dying to take away your sin and dying to take away my sin but we also see a God with us, God for us, and we also see God over us. We see the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. See, the question, are you the King of the Jews, occurs in all four of the gospels in the narrative of the trial of Jesus. It is a central theme. And all through this passage in John 18 and John 19, we have the question of kingship. Is Jesus a king? And if he is a king, what does his kingship actually mean? Who are his subjects? Will they fight for him or will they run away from him? Will they stand up for him or will they deny him? Now, while Pilate doesn't fully understand the nature of Christ's kingdom, he's satisfied that Christ is not an earthly threat to the, Roman, um, the Pax Romana within, the, 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 within Palestine. He is not a threat to Pilate and his own position. Now, in our own times today, um, uh, royalty is often presented to the crowd um, in, in a certain ritual way. Uh, as you can tell from my accent, uh, although I live in Berrien Springs, I was raised in England. And um, in England, um, the, the, the heir to the throne is known as the Prince of Wales. Now, he, the heir to the throne is the Prince of Wales because uh, back in the day, about 800 years ago, there was a famous king called Edward I. Um, he was known by the English as Edward Longshanks because he had long legs. Uh, he was known by the Scots as Malora Scotorum, the hammer of the Scots, as he kept beating them down. He was always engaged in battles, but he was the king who really pacified Wales and conquered Wales for the United Kingdom, as it were. And uh, the, the Welsh did not like him for this. So when he had his firstborn son, he put his son onto a shield and lifted him up before the crowds at Carnavon Castle. And he presented to them the Prince of Wales. We have such a custom today in our marriage ceremonies. Uh, when, so when, when a man and a woman have signed the legal documents with the registrar, um, we then present them to the congregation as Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so. And so we see this pattern in, in marriages. We see it in history, that when, when something is changing, when somebody important has arrived, they are presented to the crowd. And in this passage, after Jesus has been scourged by the soldiers, he receives a mock acclamation from the Roman soldiers. He is arrayed as a king with a crown of thorns and a purple robe around his shoulders, there is a reed in his hand representing a sceptre that is royal authority, and he's taunted as the king of the Jews, dressed as an Oriental king would be, receiving mock homage. At the climax of the mock, mock acclamation, he is presented to the mob, to his people, and Pilate says, "Behold the man." And the mockery and, and the catcalling and, and the, the cruc- calls to crucify rise in waves of hatred, and they flow all around Jesus as he stands there silently. Now this didn't just happen to Jesus. There are well-known historical examples in the Roman Empire of people having precisely this kind of experience. The mob did this to a well-known lunatic in Alexandria when Agrippa the I visited, and again in Alexandria in 117 .AD, the Roman prefect took the lead in such a mock acclamation, mocking the Jewish hopes of a messianic figure. And Pilate knows the Jews are expecting a Messiah. They are looking for a king who will free them from the Romans. And Jesus is merely a tool in his hands to rub the Jews' messianic hopes into the ground. And as such, he is now to be paraded before the crowd. You believe in the coming Messiah? You can almost hear Pilate saying, you think a Messiah is going to come and set you free? You think uh, there's going to be a Messiah ruling in this palace in Jerusalem and not the Roman governor? Well, here he is. Behold the man, a pathetic, a beaten a bloodied, a bowed, a broken figure. His entire regalia is a mockery and a pale imitation of a real king. And see, he has no authority. Now, the mob understood the significance of the moment. Later in the passage, we read their final cry, we have no king but Caesar. And this was the breaking of the fundamental relationship between God and ethnic Israel. See, historically, the Jews had endured various kinds of foreign oppression. They've been invaded by the Syrians, by the Midianites, by the Philistines, by the Edomites, by the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, the Seleucids, the Ptolemies, and now the Romans. But what had sustained them through almost a thousand years of foreign oppression was their belief and their hope in a Messiah. The appearance of Messiah who would vindicate their faith and establish his rule over the world with Jerusalem as the capital. Isaiah 26 and verse 13 captures this sense very well. Isaiah says this, "'O Lord our God, other lords beside you have ruled over us, but your name alone do we honor.'" So yes, the Jews had endured centuries and centuries of foreign rulers um, ruling over them, taxing them, persecuting them, but they had always held on to their hopes for a Messiah. And when Pilate says to them, he stands to one side, he says, "'Behold the man.'" And the crowd cries back, we have no king but Caesar. For the first time in their history, we find the formal abandonment of the messianic hopes on the part of the Jews. And from that moment on, the church, drawn from peoples of all nations, tribes, languages and peoples, becomes the center of God's purposes on earth. But despite the mockery, despite the rejection, despite the fun and the games, despite the pathos and the irony of the whole tragic situation, He's still a king, and he's my king. What kind of king is he? Well, John later in his life writes a a vision, Revelation chapter 19, 11 through 16. And on the thigh of Jesus is written this incredible title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So he stands there on the platform as God with us, Emmanuel, God who goes through our suffering with us, who understands the depths of the suffering that humanity experiences. We see before us, God for us. That is Jesus as the lamb of God about to take away the sin of the world, dying, a dying savior that we might have eternal life. And we also see before us a king, but not just any king, but the king of kings and lord of lords. So who do you see tonight? Do you see a man just standing there with a broken, bloodied, uh, battered, uh, broken body? Do you see a criminal or do you see something more? See we're living in a world today where people are really heavily invested in this political figure or that political figure We're living in a in a nation today where where we, we are polarized between x party and y party people are people are are polarized in America right now, and people are hoping for this leader or that leader to come into the White House. But, be, but beyond all of that, we are citizens from, of a heavenly kingdom. And we're expecting our savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come from heaven. He is the one that we're invited to be looking to tonight, particularly as we enter these Sabbath hours. As we see Jesus on the podium, we see God with us, Emmanuel, becoming flesh, not abandoning us in our sufferings, but partaking of the human experience of pain in all of our sufferings and all of our sufferings and all of our, all of our pain. We see God for us, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, the good shepherd about to lay down his life for his sheep, a saviour about to die to pay the penalty for my sins and for yours. And we see God over us, a king, not just any king, not just any president, not just any prime minister, not just any first secretary, but we're looking at the King of kings and Lord of lords. And by the grace of God, each one of us is looking at our king tonight. As Pilate says, behold, the man. So I want to invite you tonight to dwell as we go through these Sabbath hours, not on the politics of America, not on the politics of our world, but on the fallen rulers of our world, but to turn your eyes to Jesus. As we turn our eyes to Jesus, my prayer for us is that there'll be less of us day by day and more of Jesus in our characters. But as we go through these Sabbath hours, we will be intentionally asking God to grow us, to shape us, to transform us, that there be less of me by the time the Sabbath hours leave tomorrow and there'll be more of Jesus and that people see less of me and they see more of Jesus in my daily interactions. So tonight and through these Sabbath hours, I invite you to do as Pilate said, behold the man and in beholding become changed. Be changed by the one who is God with us, Emmanuel, by the one who is God for us, the Lamb of God, and be transformed by the coming King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. May God bless us as we go through these Sabbath hours together. May God grant us a personal transformation that the world would see less of us and more of the man of Nazareth in all that we do and say in this coming week. Wherever you are, I invite you to bow your heads with me, and we're going to uh, close with a short benediction. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the chance to talk about Jesus tonight. Father, I thank you that He appeals to all peoples, to men and women, boys and girls of every nation and kindred and tribe and tongue. I thank you that he died to save all peoples and that uh, there is no polarization within his kingdom. And So tonight, Father, as we enter these Sabbath hours, I pray that each one of us will focus our minds on Jesus, who he is, what he has done for each one of us, what he is still going to do in each of our lives. And I pray, Father, that the next time Jesus comes as a king to this world in the clouds of glory with the armies of heaven, truly as the King of kings and Lord of lords, we will be ready and waiting for him. Say, this is our God for whom we have waited, and he shall save us. So, Father, until that day, may we be found faithful in whatever portion of the vineyard you have called us to serve. Thank you, Father, for the story of Jesus. Thank you that he is coming again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.